Chapter 3 Tradition and Change in the Quest for a Healthy Masculinity by Kurt Horst I pastor a congregation in Heston, Kansas, a town of about 4,000, in an agrarian community and part of the United States known for its conservative political leanings. I serve as Regional Conference Minister for South Central Conference of Mennonite Church USA, a conference on the conservative side of the denomination's continuum. I am in my mid-60s, so I am in touch with a more traditional outlook characteristic of people of earlier generations. I grew up in a small town, mid-America, just a generation or two removed from the farm. In traditional Mennonite communities, the church was the central social organization, the alternative to social clubs, pool halls, lodges, and dance parties. The traditional family had two parents, a father and a mother, and their roles were complementary. Dads went to work, and moms worked part-time outside the home only after the children reached school age. Divorce and single-parent families were the exception. In the words of Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, Because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Since the mid-20th century, Mennonites have been more urban and wealthier, more educated and politically more liberal. As documented in a 2006 survey of Mennonite Church USA members, with members' increased education and mobility, the impact of women's rights, activism, and changing ideas about gender has also increased. For some, these changes are welcome. For others, the loss of traditions has contributed to uncertainty, anxiety, and an erosion in personal and community identity. Now, the church's divisions mirror those of the culture, and church attendance is in decline. The training in Christian discipleship that I received as a child and youth did not explicitly address masculinity. For 30 years, I have studied men's issues, yet I have rarely incorporated fruits of that study in my teaching and preaching. I've given a few seminars at church conventions and written a series of study guides for college men's groups, but otherwise I have encountered little desire to hear about men's issues. Perhaps our church's history of male dominance means that I should allow my voice to remain silent. Or perhaps I can see my silence as a way of identifying with Jesus, the suffering servant who did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 7. But in the context of an apparent lack of interest in masculinity in the church, how am I as a man to lead a life that is spiritually healthy? In what follows, I describe some of the complexities surrounding questions about masculinity as seen from what we might call a traditional North American Mennonite viewpoint. These include cultural confusions that have arisen with the introduction of feminism and developments in broader intellectual culture and historical confusions arising from transformations in works and the home during the Industrial Revolution. At the conclusion of that analysis, I reflect briefly on work, gender, and sin in biblical and theological perspective. 
In the final part of the chapter, I offer some thoughts about hope for getting beyond these confusions. After considering the questions of why we need hope, I propose a traditional vision that moves beyond either the version of masculinity advocated by conservatives or the one supported by liberals. Both of these make normative some aspect of the fallen gender order. I end by pointing to places where I see hope for a better way emerging. Complexities in a quest for spiritually healthy masculinity. My quest for spiritually healthy masculinity has been a varied exploration. As an athlete and a competitive oldest child of an oldest child, I found muscular Christianity attractive for a time in my youth. Yet I turned down athletic scholarship offers in order to attend a denominational Christian college. I am biologically male, heterosexual, and sometimes unsure about whether I am masculine or whether that should matter. I want my two sons to be secure in their maleness, but not necessarily in their manliness. I want them to act honorably in their relationships with women and be respectful in their attitudes towards women. I observe gender patterns in the play of my seven grandchildren and wonder how they will sort out the mixed messages about gender that they receive from parents, media, church, culture, and friends. I struggle to know what language to use in talking about men and masculinity. Gender theorists tell us that to varying degrees, we are female or male, masculine or feminine, woman or man. Women's studies courses are popular. Men's studies courses are hard to find. Feminism is affirmed, while masculinism seems like a bad word, although it is one that my dictionary doesn't recognize. Masculinity needs to be plural. Masculinities, while femininity, singular, is for girly girls, and is not seen as one viable option among an assortment of femininities. In popular culture, if a man is not masculine, he is feminine. In contrast, a woman may be seen as more feminine or less feminine, but if she is regarded as less feminine, she is not necessarily labeled masculine. Increasingly, to use male and female as binary categories is politically incorrect. Even the question, am I male, has become a complex one. When a survey asks for one's sex, that is still generally understood as a biological question, although it is beginning to be understood as a gender question. In 2014, the social media site Facebook expanded to 51 options for identifying one's sex. How are men to navigate the intersection of these cultural issues with our identity as man, male, masculine? Minority and oppressed groups sometimes observe that those in privileged majority positions exhibit an unwillingness or inability to see or talk about themselves as an identified group. I have witnessed resistance to organizing an all-male consultation. It can be construed as a manifestation of male dominance, and it risks provoking opposition from women's rights advocates. 
but I wonder whether this resistance could be an expression of an avoidance or denial that perpetuates destructive attitudes among men who see themselves as progressive, sensitive, and even feminist. Spiritual quests for healthy masculinity have a varied history. Beginning as early as the 19th century, men formed a variety of organizations in response to emerging women's movements. They include muscular Christianity, which originated in England in the mid-19th century. It equated exercise, athletic competition, and physical strength with spirituality. The mythopoetic men's movement in the 1980s and 90s invited men to join in coming-of-age rituals intended to call them back to themselves, separate from women. The movement took its cues from indigenous tribes' male initiation rites. Founded in 1990, Promise Keepers is an evangelical Christian organization that seeks to ignite and unite men to become warriors who will change the world. Promise Keepers reports, We have found that men tend to be more open to God's presence when they are with other men. There is something unique about the all-male environment that sets men free to drop the normal posturing and humble ourselves in Jesus Christ, committing to new beginnings. As part of my personal quest for answers, in 2005 I wandered into the campus bookstore at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. I browsed in a large section labeled Gender Studies, but I found nothing about heterosexual men. Two-thirds of the titles focused on women's issues, and the remaining third was on homosexuality. When I voiced my frustration, the clerk asked whether there was a title I would expect to find. When she had checked for Healing the Masculine Soul, 1988, in the catalog, she told me that it could be ordered, but it would be shelved under self-help. In my search of an online international listing of college undergraduate degree options, I found that of 406 listings under the heading Gender and Sexuality Studies, 51 were Women's Studies programs, 39 were Gender Studies programs, 299 were degree programs that included gender in the title, 279 included women, and 13 included feminist. None had men, male, or masculinity in the title. I found one college, not included in the previous list, that offers a minor in men's studies. A glance at Wikipedia the ever-changing online encyclopedia, reveals that men's studies, often called men and masculinity, is an interdisciplinary academic field devoted to topics concerning men, masculinity, feminism, gender, and politics, that draws upon feminist theory in order to analyze different ideologies having to do with masculinity. On more than one occasion, my search for men's studies resources produced the suggestion that I look to criminology for research on men's behavior. Where should men turn for answers to the question, what is a man, or am I a man? If it were a matter of anatomy, one could just look in your genes. As a Biology 101 classmate told me, 
even arriving at a definition of masculinity is an adventure. It is a complex and evolving set of social constructs that take shape in different cultural, racial, ethnic, sociological, and even economic settings. These and other observations have drawn me into exploring cultural changes and gender roles as they have been developed over the last few centuries. Because of the rural social location of my Mennonite ancestors, these changes had only limited effect on my grandparents, but their impact has been more significant for me and my family as we participate in mainstream North American white Protestant culture. My search for answers yielded some surprising results. What are often accepted as traditional North American assumptions about masculinity have close connections to one, cultural patterns and roles that emerge when external threats cause work to be divided according to gender, and two, family patterns that emerged out of the Industrial Revolution. Following is a summary of my discoveries. While I have given more focus to gender roles than to masculine identity, the two are intimately intertwined cultural patterns, and shared gender roles. In her book, My Brother's Keeper, social psychologist Mary Stewart Van Leeuwen reports on two studies based on a large collection of independent cultural observations. When the data in this collection were cross-referenced with observed levels of gender differentiation, they revealed that societies characterized by relative peace and justice have less differentiation in the roles of men and women. In both studies, the variable most likely to predict greater equality between men and women is the early involvement of fathers in care of their children. The data showed that where fathers were involved in early child care, women are devalued less and both men and women are more likely to be active participants in community decision-making. Van Leeuwen concludes, When young boys have primary caretakers of both sexes, they are less likely as adults to engage in women-devaluing activities and in self-aggrandizing, cruel, or overly competitive male cults. The second most consistent predictor of greater gender equality is significant involvement of women in the control of family and community resources. All other factors are either not significant or only modestly significant. This research does not claim to establish cause and effect, but other observations also suggest that co-parenting and shared decision-making are associated with greater gender equality and harmony. Early involvement by caretakers of both sexes correlates with less gender role differentiation, reduced gender identity anxiety, and increased likelihood that men, women, and children will experience greater happiness, peace, and purpose. Conversely, the less involved fathers are in early childcare, the greater the male insecurity that is displayed and the more likely that men will devalue and abuse women and will develop competitive patterns with other men. The researchers haven't been able to do valid comparisons about results of the absence of women in early childcare because they haven't found an adequate cohort of subjects to study. 
The researchers also note that cultures with more egalitarian gender roles are usually equatorial or tropical island cultures. In these settings, finding and gathering food is not risky. There are few aggressive neighbors or predatory animals to be defended against, so men do not need to be absent for prolonged periods to engage in war and hunting. Unlike less peaceful and less secure cultures, these cultures do not exhibit a precarious, elusive, or artificial construct of manhood that needs to be established against powerful odds. While the research does not identify some peaceful cultures marked by clear gender differentiation, it finds no warning cultures without significant gender differentiation. In peaceful and secure settings, men and women share roles. Male involvement in the care and nurture of infants and children is common. The availability of enough food, justice, and a lack of natural and human enemies, peace, allows for greater male involvement in the lives of children resulting in less gender differentiation. Followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, should not find the results of this research surprising. Family Patterns That Emerged Out of the Industrial Revolution Separating the Worlds of Work and Home A family friend asked our four-year-old son, Where does your daddy work? Michael responded, My daddy doesn't work. He just goes to meetings. I was a pastor of a small suburban church, and my office was in our home. Michael's picture of the world of work was based on his observation that Grandpa and Uncle Rick left for work each weekday morning, and when they went to work, they wore work clothes. The only time I put on such clothes was to do yard or garden work. Since I was often home with him and sometimes took him along on pastoral visits, my daily activities did not qualify as work. But work hasn't always been done away from home, and it hasn't always been tied to making money. For most people, for much of human history, men, women, and children all worked. Historically, there were two basic ways of organizing a society around the necessary work. Hunting and gathering societies. Hunter-gatherers divided work between genders. Hunting being riskier and requiring extended absences from home, was generally the work of men. The period from conception to weaning was about three years and kept women in and near camp. The high-risk work went to men because they were not essential to the care of infants. In many hunter and gatherer cultures, rituals developed for calling young men away from their mothers and into manhood. These patterns form the background for the mythopoetic men's movement. Settled societies. A second organizational pattern emerged in settled agriculture, merchant, and trade societies. Everyone, parents and children, worked together in the family occupation. Families took on names related to the work. Miller, Weaver, Taylor, and so on. While there were divisions of labor, particularly when there was an infant in the home, the business was the family's and not something anyone went away to do. As children grew up, they were apprenticed in the family business. The expectation that everyone worked in the family business was also true of middle marketing families who ran stores, mercantiles, that were often extensions of the family's living quarters. 
The exceptions were the soldiers and sailors who were often away for extended periods of time, as in hunting and warring cultures. The Industrial Revolution The practice of going to work and coming home to a place where you don't work is a relatively recent development, a product of the Industrial Revolution, mass production, capitalism, and the modern factory. Factories needed laborers who lived close to the worksite. To attract workers, companies provided housing. Company housing, accompanied by wages, marked the beginning of a cultural change. For men, having a job replaced owning property as the mark of responsibility. The resulting association of work with wages had the unfortunate effect that women who stayed home did not work. Advances in transportation, agriculture production, and food preservation, including refrigeration, made it possible for large populations to locate farther and farther away from the point of food production, which enabled the development of larger cities. The resulting mass migration of people to cities disrupted childcare support systems traditionally provided by extended families. In many cases, Aunts, uncles, grandparents, nieces, and nephews no longer lived near enough to assist with child care and supervision of children in their extended family. Separating the Worlds of Men and Women Before the Industrial Revolution, families worked together in caring for the land or the family business. With the Industrial Revolution, men began to spend many hours away from their families. The eight-hour workday and the five-day work week were things of the future. The care of infants required the presence of women while men could be absent for hours and even days. Like soldiers and sailors who worked in all-male settings with dictatorial captains, working men spent many hours in predominantly male places of work, sometimes under the supervision of slave-driving bosses. Men no longer apprenticed their children and were less involved in daily training and discipline. Home was no longer a place of shared production, but was idealized as a place of refuge from the rigors of work. The church eventually found ways to bless these significant shifts in parenting roles. A review of clergy advice from the colonial era gives the impression that 18th century men were considered morally and spiritually superior to women in matters of child-rearing. By the end of the 19th century, women had come to be considered morally and spiritually superior. Motherhood had become a sacred calling, and care of children was seen as a vocation for which women were better suited than men. In effect... The Industrial Revolution made women the nurturers of children, and men the economic providers. Churches supported this arrangement, declaring it natural and scriptural. Masculinity entailed rationality, competition, and profit in the marketplace, the academy, and politics. Femininity was associated with domesticity, sacrifice, tender emotion, and piety. Home, for men, was to be an emotional respite from the ruthless public world of work, competition, and profit. Family was to be a noble retreat from work. But men began to come home to places where they felt like strangers, even intruders. Children began to make their own choices about occupation and marriage partners. 
men felt more important at work than at home. Tired from a day's work, they were expected to straighten out the problems that had emerged during the day. When daddy gets home became a threat to unruly children, while decisions about family priorities were often made without the father's input because he was either at work or too tired to be burdened with them. Historians James Junkie and Carol Hunter point out patterns of gender conflict that emerged out of the Industrial Revolution. As home became a woman's world, men found other places to go after work. In bars and clubs, men found camaraderie. By 1901, 5.5 million men, five times as many men as belonged to unions, belonged to all-male lodges such as the Oddfellows, Moose, Eagles, and Knights of Columbus. Saloons, bars, and clubs were even more popular than lodges. <clears throat> According to historian John Kingsdale, many urban working-class districts had at least one saloon for every 50 adult males. Bars became places to recover from a strenuous day of work. Saloons and clubs, like areas for rest and relaxation in port cities and near military installations, became spaces for male fellowship and free self-expression, where unattached women served the men. These patterns continue into the present, as demonstrated in a bit of dialogue from the television drama NCIS. One character in the crime lab says, This is a safe place for us to, uh, voice our concerns? Another responds, Huh. In my world, we call that a bar. Women who increasingly saw themselves as the guardians of morality and social decency, responded with the temperance movement. As they became aware of their political power, they set out to promote domestic and moral values through the political arena. In the United States, a constitutional amendment prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol passed in 1919 with massive support from the Women's Christian Temperance Union. A year later, in 1920, the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. Along with these cultural changes, the 19th and early 20th century saw a decrease in church attendance among men. Men still held most church offices, but the organizations that carried on the ministries of most churches depended on the volunteer labor of non-working women. Meanwhile, Public places in the world of men were taking on religious names. They became temples of commerce and cathedrals of learning. Some, notably banks and transportation centers, even took on the traditional architecture of churches. Meanwhile, in the rural areas of North America, agrarian life continued patterns that required everyone's involvement in the family economy. Here, destructive patterns of gender differentiation were less prevalent. Separating the worlds of labor and management. By the mid-20th century, the workplace, like the ship or the army, became a place where many men served and a few ruled. Foremen and bosses ran factories, and owners were sometimes even referred to as captains of industry, where owners and bosses were dictatorial, pay inadequate, and working conditions oppressive. 
Workers organized to challenge the power of management. Strikes and violence entered the world created by the Industrial Revolution. One can easily draw parallels between the closed world of the ship, headed by an autocratic captain, and the closed world of the shop, between the mutiny of sailors and the protests, strikes, and revolts of angry laborers. These disputes, and the violence that accompanied them, created sharp divisions between labor and management. In this context, a sense of community developed among workers. Laborers were in it together against a common enemy. They looked out for one another, and a fraternal community emerged in the shop. When one of ours had a crisis, others were quick to help. Nevertheless, while company loyalty among labor was often judged to be weak and became a management concern, management-level workers were more likely than common laborers to jump ship if a better job came along. For management, economic power, authority, and job title determine status. In the shop, a man's persona away from the job established status. Recreation among management often involved one-on-one -on -one competitions, tennis, golf, gambling, while labor joined in group activities and team sports, softball, hunting, fishing. The culture of the shop was man against nature, or man against machine, while the culture of the office was man against man. Inner Division, Sin, and the Curse in biblical and theological terms, do men have a different relationship with, understanding of, and attitude about work than women? The Genesis creation story suggests that because of the curses that result from sin, men and women do have differing attitudes towards work. As a result of sin, God decreed that women's burden would be in birthing children and men's burden would be in toiling to produce food. Genesis 3, 16-19 A further curse falls on Cain after he kills his brother Abel. The ground will no longer yield its strength for him, and he is driven away from the soil. Cain becomes a fugitive and a wanderer until he establishes a place of commerce a city where a living could be made by barter rather than through direct dependence on the earth. Genesis 4, verses 11 to 17. This account of the fall and its aftermath suggests that under the curse and with connection to suffering, women find identity through children and men find identity in work. In addition, the curse of Cain suggests that violent men find their identity in an economy in which they profit from dealing in the fruits of other people's labor. The biblical texts do not assume that men will work and women will not. Both men and women will work, but the texts suggest that men, because of sin and the curse, have a different relationship with and attitude to work. We too often forget that according to scripture, these differences are a result of sin and the curse and not part of God's original intention in creating humanity. Jesus came into the world to liberate humanity from these curses. Christians, knowing their liberation, are to demonstrate the values of the reign of God, not, as some Christian traditions seem to do, to proclaim the curse as normative. 
part of God's intended order. Within this understanding, spirituality is not different for men and women, but the path to spiritual wholeness may be quite different because men and women begin their journey from different places. Because of the curse, men's love-hate attitude about work makes them more vulnerable to using work to authenticate their identity. A materialistic connection between income and sense of self-worth is a result of the curse, and in the realm of God's intention, it is known to be false and idolatrous. Work is good and necessary. Work must be available to all who are able to undertake it. It must be valued but not idolized, and it should be valued apart from any income it produces. People who care for children and maintain households remind us that the fact that their work does not generate income does not mean that they are idle and lazy. Good work is good work, regardless of whether it produces income. Statistician and economist E.F. Schumacher, in Good Work, tells us that much of what we call work, because it produces income, is far from good. He cites a provocative line from a London Times article, Dante, when composing his visions of hell, might well have included the mindless, repetitive boredom of working on a factory assembly line. Hope. Traces of Discouragement. The above discoveries and observations leave me with conflicting responses to some aims of some women's movements and also to the so-called family values of the evangelical Christian right. For its part, the Christian right proclaims a masculinity that is as much a product of the industrial revolution and the privileges of wealth as of biblical teaching. At the same time, where women seek an equal share in the successful men's world of coercion, power, and wealth, their progress may be not a step forward, but only a step up on the rungs of the broken ladder that takes us up towards devaluing human capital. Knowing that fear-based cultures manifest greater gender separation that produces attitudes that demean women, I cringe at the global increase in militancy and fear and the power-based political rhetoric of class, racial, and gender struggle. Unless we can find ways to reduce violence, tribal and nationalistic posturing, an obsession with maintaining borders, and ethnic and economic segregation, the political polarization that many lament will continue to produce polarization between the sexes. With the increase in single-parent households and the changing patterns around marriage, divorce, and family, I wonder where future generations of young men will learn about healthy masculinity and shared gender roles. According to a 2013 article in The Globe and Mail, family incomes began to stagnate and family structures changed radically beginning in the 1970s. It was also in the 1970s that North America made the turn from an industrial to post-industrial service economy. Divorce rates soared, marriage rates fell, and more women began to have children outside marriage. In the United States, 41% of babies are born out of wedlock, and in Canada, 25%. Among developed countries, the United States has the highest percentage of single-parent families, 
followed by Canada. The poverty rate among lone parent families is four times that of two-parent families with children. Estimates are that 50% of children will spend some part of their childhood in a single-parent home. Massachusetts Institute of Technology economists David Alter and Melanie Wasserman report a direct link between the rising tide of fatherlessness and the growing failure of boys in school and the labor market. Boys without fathers are more likely to develop serious behavior problems at an early age. They are more antisocial and aggressive, more disruptive, and more likely to drop out of school, get in trouble with the law, and become less employable. They are less inclined to get married, but quite likely to produce children. As households find it more and more difficult to get by with a single income, and both parents leave home in order to work, children have fewer opportunities to observe women and men working together cooperatively. Some have reported to me that the first time they observed a parent in a work environment, they were surprised to discover that the person they thought they knew was quite different from the one they saw at home. A controlling mother became a willing servant, and an angry, uninvolved father was everybody's friend. Geographic separation from extended family and the loss of available time for parenting can also take a toll on parents and children. Daycare is a privilege of the rich, but an economic necessity for poor and single-parent households. The load on government social service agencies, children and youth welfare systems, foster care, etc., is threatening to expand beyond our ability to manage it while caring for aging parents adds to the burden of already overburdened families and is a social concern and a drain on the economy. Traditional Perspectives on Masculinity I believe that when historians look back a couple hundred years from now, they will identify the ready availability of contraceptives as a development as socially and politically transformative as the invention of the printing press. Easy access to contraceptives, and the view that abortion is a contraceptive option, has changed sexual encounters into recreational pursuits rather than recreational unions. Even within the church, marriage is not so much a holy ordinance as a legal arrangement. The level of premarital sexual activity and cohabitation among church members is much like that in wider society. Before contraceptives, the risk of pregnancy created an imbalance of power between a man and a woman involved in a sexual relationship. Feminism celebrates the introduction of contraceptives because it levels the playing field, balancing the risks and burdens women and men face. But if contraception was supposed to nurture a healthy masculinity, it has failed. Instead of creating an environment where men are more responsible, the result has been a general irresponsibility. Apart from concern about sexually transmitted disease and a degrading of intimacy. Jesus predicted that because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24:12 as making love becomes a recreational rather than recreational activity, some emotional and spiritual intimacy is lost, 
and the act of becoming one is desecrated, its sanctity violated. The Bible says, The man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Genesis 4.1 The injunction to humanity to be fruitful and multiply is given both at creation, Genesis 1.28, and again after the flood, Genesis 9.7. Jesus' prediction that love will grow cold foretells an increase in isolation and longing for intimacy. The cooling of love is not just a loss of romance, but a spiritual loss. The biblical teaching on becoming one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Mark 10, 7-8 It is often read as if become one flesh refers simply to the sexual union. But I believe it includes the understanding that the two becoming one will result in a new human life, a new flesh. When Jesus adds the words, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Mark 10.9 He is teaching not just that those who are married should never be separated, but also that marriage should never be separated from its intended purpose, procreation. This understanding of marriage has had an impact on our view not only of marriage and family, but also of singleness. I once heard of a Mennonite theologian who, after careful study, reported that the Bible teaches that marriage is good, but singleness is better. The church should give greater respect to unmarried people. Paul's teaching that each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them, 1 Corinthians 7.20 means that people who aren't married when they become Christians should remain single unless God calls them to marriage. In contrast, the church's view has been that remaining single takes a special calling. I counsel couples anticipating marriage that unless they are convinced that their ministry for the reign of God will be greater together than it would be without their partner, their marriage will not meet the biblical standard for a Christian marriage. A final observation. Having lived long in rural settings, I have seen roosters, stallions, and bulls strut their stuff. My acquaintance with animal sexuality makes it easy for me to see parallels between the alpha male patterns of the barnyard and the problems that arise when masculinity turns toxic. The Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans equates humans who adopt the ways of creatures rather than exhibiting the image of God with a cessation of proper worship. The toxic masculinity that takes on alpha male patterns evident in the animal world is the spiritual result of self-worship, with the rejection of the creator, a form of masculinity that mimics the animal world becomes the norm. The loving servant patterns of Jesus who revealed the nature of God, Colossians 1, 19-20, and Philippians 2, 6-7, fail to become the norm for human interactions. These animal patterns are toxic for humans and form the root of what I sometimes call male pattern irresponsibility. Paul observes further that fallen humans take their perversion beyond what animals display. But for Paul, the ultimate perversion is not degraded sexual relationships. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Romans 1, 28-32 Clearly, for too much of modern history, the Church has treated the fallen gender order as if it were God's intention in creation. Whether in the Crusades, muscular Christianity, the Ku Klux Klan, promise keepers, or wild at heart, proponents have taken their cues from the behaviors of fallen humanity rather than from Jesus. As a result, the Church has sometimes blessed destructive masculinity and abusive patriarchy. But I fear that, in the same way, the conservative church has built its case on a fallen humanity. The liberal wing is susceptible to blessing behaviors that emerge from fallen reactions and godless anger rather than from the love and mercy of Jesus. I am ambivalent toward the Christian right and the left, and I don't see where I have a side in the fight. An Anabaptist understanding of the way of Jesus as a third way continues to inform my reticence about joining either side in these culture wars. Glimpses of Hope I see glimpses of hope as North America moves further into post-industrialism. The shape of masculinity is changing for young families and for single adults. As manufacturing jobs drop below 10% of the workforce and service sector jobs make up over 50% of employment opportunities, men and women are more likely to be working together and forging new ways of defining themselves. Single adults, now half the adult population, are changing the assumption that marriage is necessary to fulfillment. I conclude with a number of places I see glimpses of hope. I see glimpses of hope when I see peer interactions becoming more egalitarian, shared work and household roles becoming more varied, and regular inclusion of single-parent households in social interactions, giving children chances to observe men and women working cooperatively. I see glimpses of hope where work is understood in terms of its value in household and community, not just because of its monetary value. I see glimpses of hope when men share the work of their households and where children are not just assigned chores, but share work with their parents. I see glimpses of hope where adults, men and women, include neighborhood children in neighborhood projects. I see glimpses of hope where men women, and children work together for peace and justice on local, national, and international levels. I see glimpses of hope when husbands and wives make sure their children see them sharing economic information and decision-making, and where they make charitable giving and service projects part of family life. 
I see glimpses of hope where women and men are involved together in schools, community development, recreation programs, and churches. I see glimpses of hope when I see men model healthy cooperative leadership as they work alongside women in programs for children, including those in sole parent households.